Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the praises that we are able to give you this morning through song. We know, Lord, from the scriptures that you embody the praises of your people. And we thank you, Father, that even in the midst of uh, the times that we're living in, which are difficult um, at best, we can praise you for the things that you have done, for the things that you're doing, and for the things that you're going to do. Lord, we thank you for your word, which gives us everything that we need for life and godliness in this present world. We thank you for the promises that you give us, Lord God, in that word that Jesus is coming again. We thank you for the promise that one day we will be together in a place where there is no pain, there is no sorrow, there is no sickness. There will only be joy and peace and righteousness. And we look forward to that day, Lord. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. But until that day comes, you've given us a word. You've given us lots of words in your scripture, Lord God, by which we should order our lives. And I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would make them come alive within us. Help us, Lord God, to be uh, very mindful of the things you want us to apply. Convict us where we need convicting. Comfort us where we need comforting. We ask it in the precious name of your son, Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Have a well, this morning, I just uh, want to begin by saying, uh, by using a quotation, which may, many of you may not recall from years gone by, but be that as it may. Let us begin by committing ourselves to the truth, to see it like it is, to tell it like it is, to find the truth, to speak the truth, and to live the truth. Those are profound words, necessary words, powerful, practical words, words that are thundered forth as prophetic and certainly refreshing at a time in history when the God is dead philosophy was raging during the time when those words were spoken. The irony is, is that they were not uttered by a prophet. They were not uttered by a pastor, by a great reformer, or a person remembered for their great philosophical wisdom. They were uttered by a politician. A politician remembered not for his adherence to the truth, but his preponderance to lie. Those prolific words urging us toward truth were spoken by Richard M. Nixon as he accepted the GOP presidential nomination in 1968. The rest, as we all know, is history. But let's not fall into the trap of condemning the mistakes of one man in an attempt to absolve ourselves of our own guilt. The plain and unadulterated truth of the matter is that most people lie. The most striking contradiction of our civilization, said one astute man, is the fundamental reverence for truth which we profess and the thoroughgoing disregard for it which we practice. Way back in 1991, authors James Patterson and Peter Kim rocked this nation as the results of the largest survey of morals ever taken were published. 
It was in those results that America told the truth about lying. And the truth is that Americans lie. They lie a lot. They actually lie more than a lot. They do it as a way of life. According to the authors in that book, research indicated that 91% of Americans admitted that they lie routinely. That's interesting considering, according to another study, that 95% of Americans at that time claimed to be Christians. They lie regularly to parents, to employers, to friends, to siblings, to spouses, just about everything. According to Patterson and Kim, just about everyone lies. The majority of us finds it hard to get through a week without lying. They said that one in five people can't even make it through a single day, and that's conscious premeditated lies. We lie to almost everyone, and the better we know someone, the more likely it is that we have told them a lie. The tragedy is that a majority of Americans, two out of three, sincerely believe that there is nothing wrong with telling a lie. A measly 31% of us believe that honesty is the best policy. To be honest with ourselves, we have to face up to the fact that the church has not been spared from this love-hate relationship we have with the truth. Let me ask you, how many of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves and each other, have engaged in lying? Don't raise your hands. It's a rhetorical question. How often have we excused ourselves for employing untruth as a means of saving face or ducking embarrassment? Have there been or are there times in your Christian life when you feel that you must lie? Lying something that has always bothered me and hopefully you. It's one of my pet peeves. I despise it in Christians and I absolutely hate it in myself. I used to say, how can anyone who claims to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, who is the truth, look you in the eye and flat out lie to you? And it has happened to me on many occasions. And by people you simply would not expect. How can that be? Mark DeHaan helped my, Han, uh, helped my understanding in this. He, he wrote in one of his newsletters, quote, the lies we tell others are only the typical of the iceberg, the real problem is found in the lies we tell ourselves and believe. The real lies are those whispered in the deep shadows of our own souls. They are about forfeitures of truth at a much deeper level. And forfeiture of truth is just what has happened, not only on the current political level, but more disturbingly on an individual personal level. This is the world we live in right now. So not back in 1991 now, we're in 2020. We have been so inundated by secular philosophy that truth is relative, that even the President of the United States of America can lie through his teeth and people can justify it in their minds. And I'm not just picking on him, because it's been that way down through the ages. The unfortunate reality, however, is that the church does not stand unaffected by this. My friends, this ought not to be. If we can justify trafficking in untruth, I humbly submit that we have forgotten who we are, whose we are, and who he is. Christians, by definition, are to be people of truth. 
We are, as Paul indicated to Timothy, the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. That's in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. No small amount of discussion has been offered these days regarding rule of law, and much of it has been volatile. In light of that dialogue, I want to appeal to every Christ follower with an earshot to grapple with a much deeper question. The bottom line for us is that question, is this question, what about the rule of faith? Absolute truth is the absolute rule for an absolute faith. That's what the ninth commandment tells us. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. We're not going to stay right there, but this is, this is the verse that I want to really unpack today. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 16, part of the Ten Commandments. The Ninth Commandment says, You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Pretty straightforward. Question is, is it for today? Is it for today? You bet it is. Is it for you and me? You bet it is. You got to know that it is. Just this week, I looked at uh, some statistics, and I'm going to put one up on the, on the screen behind me. Uh, you see this chart on the most and least trusted professions in America today? If this survey had been taken a few hundred years ago, guess where the clergy might have been located? Number one. See where it is today? Somewhere down around number 10. Gallup says clergy members are still seen mainly in a somewhat positive light, but their rating for ethical behavior has fallen to almost the lowest level in 40 years. I mean, I think a year ago or two years ago, it was even lower than it is today, but just by a couple of percentages. That's scary. When a huge percentage of the American public feels that they've been lied to by a clergyman, you better know that this commandment is for us. For me, for you, the church must be characterized by a commitment to the truth in both doctrine and practice. The ninth commandment has some very serious implications for those of us who profess to follow Jesus Christ. By definition, this is the first one, that lying is unacceptable for the Christian, period. And definition is where I believe most of us are confused, when it comes to lying, we're like the kid in the Sunday school class who had been learning Bible verses but got them a little bit mixed up. And when the teacher quizzed them and asked a very simple question, what is the definition of a lie? One eager boy jumped up and he replied, I know, I know, I can answer that. A lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in time of trouble. <laughs> well, that about identifies the common position, doesn't it? I mean, as Christians, we know God has an intense hatred for lying, yet many still persist in it. It will, however, always get you in the end. Our sin will find us out, won't it? I read this interesting little anecdote. Two college students had an American history final at 8 a.m. on Monday, and instead of studying the prior Sunday evening, however, they partied late into the night, and of course, both overslept and missed the exam. 
So they told the professor that they had been out of town on Sunday, and while driving back late that Sunday, Saturday, uh, Sunday night, they had a flat tire, and it took them hours to change it, and the students then requested permission to make up the exam on Tuesday morning. Well, that's fine, the professor said. I'll see you at 8.30, 8.30 on Tuesday morning. Well, beginning Monday afternoon, the students studied. They crammed late into Monday night and, and arrived at 8.30 a.m. on Tuesday and received from the professor one envelope each. I want you to go into separate rooms, the professor muttered, instructed them, and take the exam inside the envelope. Each complied. And upon opening the envelopes, both students found the following exam. Question number one, for 5% of your grade, what was the most significant event in American history during the last 50 years and explain why you think that is so in 25 words or less? 5% of your grade. Question number two, for 95% of your grade, which tire was flat? <laughs> you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does that really mean to us? What does it really mean? Well, we often question what that commandment covers. Well, as John Rice once put it, never put a question mark where God has put a period. Let's begin by looking at God's prohibition, first of all, what it is. This, this primary force of this commandment deals with the sanctity of truth in the courtroom, so to speak. It's, it's part of Israel's legal system. Witnesses were important in the Old Testament, and there were two basic types of witnesses, dependable witnesses and unreliable witnesses. A witness was under obligation to testify. In fact, the Hebrew word witness literally means to repeat. A witness is one who by reiteration affirms his testimony emphatically. A witness supposedly had firsthand knowledge of an event and could easily testify on the basis of the report that he heard. A witness was not only compelled to testify, but the qualifier is that he must tell the truth. The penalties for being an unreliable witness were severe in the Old Testament. According to the law, the testimony of two witnesses were required to establish guilt, but if the witness was found to be a false witness, he became subject to the same penalty he hoped to inflict on the accused. That's a little bit of a deterrent, isn't it? In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 19, we read these words beginning in verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. That's a, that's a strong deterrent. If stoning was the result of the charge, then the witnesses were actually required to hurl the first stone, according to De Deuteronomy chapter 17. So what's the implication here? 
that there were serious, serious repercussions to your life if you were found to be a liar. It was the epitome of the cliche, what goes around comes around. Even pagan countries had severe laws against perjury. For example, in ancient Athens, you were liable to heavy fines if convicted. Three times, a person lost all of his civil rights if he was convicted three times. In Rome, by the law of the Twelve Tables, a false witness was hurled headlong from a rock. That's scary. And in Egypt, the judgment for bearing false testimony was the amputation of the nose and ears. That's really scary. Now, even though the commandment is couched in the courtroom language here, the Ninth Commandment is not simply limited to legal proceedings. It is a call to absolute truth in every area, uh, all areas of life, from the courtroom to the closet, from the halls of justice to the hills, the halls of your home, from the jury box to the laptop. God's position is that you shall not lie about your neighbor or anything. That's what it refers to. Leviticus chapter 19, which can be considered a practical commentary on the commandments, puts this into perspective. Leviticus 19 and verse 11 says, you shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another. And then verse 15, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. There's a New Testament counterpart to this, isn't there? Be angry, yet do not sin, right? Give the devil an opportunity. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This commandment prohibits any and all malicious conversation that raises questions about someone else's character or moral integrity. That means character assassinations are absolutely out of the question. Gossip is out of the question. Insinuations are out of the question. Deceptive statements are out of the question. Even statements of fact, if they are meant to personally injure another person, are forbidden. Verse 18 summarizes this very well here. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus identified that as the second greatest commandment in the New Testament. Lying shatters that command. Exodus chapter 23, verse 1 says, You shall not bear false report. Do not join your hand with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. That's God's prohibition, what it is. But we also need to note God's position on the topic, what he wants. Lying is not just one of my personal pet peeves, but it's one of the things that God hates with a passion. The Bible's pretty explicit on that fact. You say, well, God is a God of love. Does he hate anything? 
Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. There are six things which the Lord hates, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. That like characterizes 90% of our culture, doesn't it? What about the church? How much does it characterize people in the church that have kind of gone a little bit astray in this? Proverbs 12, says, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Shouldn't we be delighting in the Lord or delighting him? And just as it is in the Old Testament law, God's general principle about lying is universal. What goes around comes around. Proverbs 19, verses 5 and 9 says, A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Those are serious words. So we must strive to be men and women of truth. Amen? For the man or woman of God, lying is an unacceptable Practice by definition. That's number one. Number two is by its description, lying is uncharacteristic of the Christian. Again, the ninth commandment uses one word to describe the character of a lie. It's the word false. You shall not bear false witness. In Hebrew, that word means a sham. It means it's something that is without basis in fact or reality. In other words, it's completely groundless. Jeremiah warned people against listening to the false words of the false prophets in the Old Testament, and God condemned those prophets because they were shams. Their words were without basis in truth, and they led people astray. If you read Jeremiah chapter 23, you'll see that very clearly outlined. God comes down hard on the false prophets for leading people astray. God does not condone falsity. He despises it. It is completely contrary to his character, which is absolutely true and absolutely faithful. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 says this, God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because, mark this, it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. What would your relationship be like with your heavenly father if he was one that changed his mind every two minutes, or if you didn't even real, you didn't know what, whether what he was saying was trustworthy or true or not. You see, untruth is simply out of character for followers of Christ. Why? Because Christ is the truth, isn't he? So John 14, 6 says, he's given us the Holy Spirit who, is, who he identified as the spirit of truth 
who lives in us, says John 14, 17. And because he prayed that we would be sanctified or set apart from the rest of the world by the truth. It's the truth that sets us apart from the world. And that he identified what truth is in John 17. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And not only us, not only were we set apart and sanctified by Jesus, but Jesus sanctified himself that we might be sanctified in the truth. In John chapter 17, verse 19, Jesus prayed, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. It is out of character, absolutely out of character for Christians to lie because falsehood is the native language of somebody else. It's the native language of Satan who is in total opposition to the will of God. Jesus called him the father of lies. For a professing Christian then to repeatedly engage in lying, deception, or misrepresenting the truth to is to disown God and to imitate the devil. Lying calls into question a person's real loyalty no matter what that person claims. Jesus mints no words when he encountered the whitewashed hollow practices of the hypocrites of his day in John chapter 8 and verse 43. Jesus said, why do you not understand what I am saying? Talking to the Pharisees. It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God, and for this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. John MacArthur puts it very bluntly. He says, quote, when a person becomes a believer, he steps out of the domain of falsehood and into the domain of truth. And every form of lying, therefore, is utterly inconsistent with his new self. Paul didn't beat around the bush either. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes these words. He says, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed. Literally, the word is renovated to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You see, falsity is completely foreign to God's nature. And as children of God, it must become contrary to our character, character as well. Genuine Christ followers traffic in truth. Lying cannot be their practice of life. And for the record, lying is much more than just telling falsehoods. It is immeasurably more than that. It includes a lot of things that unfortunately you and I sometimes tolerate and may even practice. Let me explain 
and this is the third thing, in its demonstration, lying is virtually unlimited. What constitutes lying? Well, according to Webster, a lie is something that deceives or misleads. Now, that's pretty open-ended, isn't it? Wide scope. I'm going to suggest four categories of lies to you, which are by no means exhaustive, but they're going to make the point. They not only describe the ways in which we lie, but the motives behind it. Number one category, destructive lies. These come from the depths of hatred reflecting a lack of love for both God and man. There's some, here are some examples of destructive lies. Slander is one. Slander has reached epidemic proportions in our society today. Would anyone deny it? Listen to this that I read about some time ago, reported in USA Today. Nine-year-old girl falsely accused a substitute teacher of sexual abuse and bribed 10 other kids to do the same thing. Nine years old. The teacher was cleared when police uncovered the plot. The teacher, who had been a substitute for about four weeks, apparently had difficulty with the class the first day and sent some students to the office. The child offered nine girls and a boy $1 each to report that the teacher fondled them. Investigators interviewed 14 children the next day, and by the end of the day, we knew that every single allegation was false. And the teacher calls the incident a nightmare, you think? I understand that. A lot of people were willing to crucify me, he said. That fourth graders concocted such a scheme doesn't surprise Barbara Bowman, early childhood professor. She said, quote, it's not hard for kids in this day and age to know that accusations of sexual abuse get adults' attention. Kids know it's a real bell ringer, unquote. But what they don't know is how serious the charges are, she says. Says a teacher's union spokeswoman, Quote, what's so scary is that you've got nine-year-olds, kids, nine-year-old kids sophisticated enough to know that they can get a teacher by saying he fondled them, unquote. 25 centuries ago, Jeremiah described it very well. Speaking of his enemies, he wrote, their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceit. Have you ever been used for target practice by somebody? Ever fired your own shots at somebody else? See, the tongue is a lethal weapon, says James in chapter 3. In fact, it is the most lethal weapon in undermining and destroying unity in the believing community. Proverbs chapter 16 and verses 27 and 28 say this, an ungodly man digs up evil and it is on his lips like a burning fire. A perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. See, slandering someone, lying about his or her character is an all too common sin among Christians. And what is that all about? Would you tell me please what that's all about? 
Most of us wouldn't think of engaging in murder, would we? Or adultery. Or idolatry. Or stealing. And yet, people get some sort of cheap thrill out of bludgeoning the life out of someone and their character every chance they get. Leviticus 19 and verse 16 says, You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Slander. Too predominant. Gossip's another one. Very closely akin to slander. Along the same lines, judging from our practices today, I'm convinced that Adam and Eve must have had very limited conversations. They had nobody else to talk about each other, right? Or to talk to about each other. Whenever you're tempted to listen to someone's spicy gossip, just remember the old Spanish proverb that whoever gossips to you will gossip of you. Proverbs 20, 19 says, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a gossip. I love Proverbs 26, 20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. See, we should pray as the four-year-old who unwittingly redefined the terms when attempting to pray the Lord's Prayer. This is what he prayed. Our Father, forgive us our trash baskets as we forgive those who trash basket against us. Because that's what it is. It's trash talk, isn't it? So there's slander and gossip. And then there's insinuation. Insinuation, said Goethe, are the rhetoric of the devil. That's an interesting quote. Roll of the eyes, a well-placed question, tone of voice when mentioning someone's name, a chuckle, a wink, sigh. These are the things that can raise questions about someone's moral character and the deed is done. You don't even have to say a word. You can attack a neighbor's integrity without even a word. These are destructive lies. But then there are also what I would call defensive lies. Defensive lies, we've all, we've all seen them, from a child's lie to avoid punishment to a politician's lies to save face. From the Garden of Eden to the Oval Office and on down to the sandbox, people lie to defend themselves. Have you? Ever lie about why you were out so late to your parents? Or to your wife or to your husband? Ever lie about why you weren't in school? Why you didn't make it to church? Defensive lies take many forms too. Silence is a defensive mechanism. How can silence be a lie? Not offering all the facts, communicating a select portion of the truth, and conveniently failing to offer the whole truth in an effort to mislead, that's a lie. Like saying you're going to sleep at a friend's house but failing to tell your parents that your friend's parents are gone for the weekend and there's going to be a huge party all night long. Conveniently leaving out the truth and facts. How about truth out of context? 
Even the truth can be misleading if it's used in the wrong way. Intent has everything to do with it, right? I love this illustration. It's like the first mate that failed to perform his duties on the ship one day and was reprimanded severely by the captain. And a few days later, when the captain was ill and the first mate assumed the captain's duties, one of which was keeping the ship's log, took his revenge on the captain by opening that day's entry with these words, quote, Captain sober today, unquote. Well, they were true words, all right, but deceptive and misleading. These are destructive types of lies. Destructive and defensive. And there are defective lies. Careless words, example of that, using statistics in the wrong way, inaccurate assumptions stated as truths. I mean, if you're on social media at all, this, it's, it's replete with this kind of thing. Failing to confirm the facts before you share them. Facebook posts are notorious for this. All these are lazy lies. They mislead and they detract from the truth. God is characterized by absolute truth, not inaccurate assumptions. Exaggerations and embellishments, that's also part of the deceptive, uh, defective lies. This happens constantly in Christian circles, exaggerating your work or your ministry beyond the borders of truth, just stretching it beyond the borders of truth just a little bit is sin. While harmless exaggeration in storytelling is an acceptable form of entertainment and even a tool for teaching, it's called hyperbole, and Jesus even used it, but as Kent Hughes points out, making God's work more glorious and more successful than it actually is in your life is sin. It's misleading. It's exaggeration. And then there's flattery. Flattery. Yep. If gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face, flattery is saying to their face what you would never say behind their back. Flattery with ulterior motives does not rise out of love, my friends. It rises out of selfishness. Destructive, defensive, defective. They're all types of lies we tell to our own advantage. And yet there's a fourth category that I've listed today, and it's called deceptive lies. These are the most dangerous type. Half-truths. How many times have you shaded the truth? Withheld information. You know, a half-truth is a whole lie. You knew that, right? You may do it to save face, ease fear, protect your spouse, etc., but it's still lying, and it's against the character of God. The Peanuts cartoon back in the day answers this question in the best way that I could. Charlie Brown says to Linus, we're supposed to write home to our parents and tell them what a great time we're having at camp. Linus answers, even if we're not, isn't that a lie? Charlie Brown explains, well, it's sort of a white lie, to which Linus questions, lies come in colors? <laughs> Do you make a practice of condoning white lies or use any of those reasons to justify lying as a Christian um, thing? Uh, if you justify your lying as a Christian, your philosophy is very faulty. The scripture says in Ephesians 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Do not lie to one another. 
in verse 9, Paul says. Because God despises it. He desires truth in the innermost being, David said in Psalm 51.6. You shall not bear false witness. By definition, it is unacceptable for the Christian. By its description, it is uncharacteristic of the Christian. And in its demonstration, it is unlimited in the, for the most part because it, it, it's so far-reaching. But the worst thing about lying is that in its devastation, it is unyielding. In its devastation, it is unyielding. The trail of emotional and spiritual destruction left by the winds of deceit is as vivid and real as the damage found in the wake of a hurricane. It is injurious to people. It's insidious in the church and it's insulting to God. It's for those reasons that we ought to despise it as well. So what are the effects of breaking the ninth commandment? Well, let's give you this really quickly and then we'll wrap it up. Number one, Christian character is dissolved. Christian character is dissolved. Dr. R. McQuilkin suggests falsehood is the basic fault line in the foundation of the soul putting all the superstructure in jeopardy. All the believability a person has, his very integrity totters on the shifting sand of one lie. Andrew Entwistle, captain of the United States Army, once said, integrity is like virginity. Once you've lost it, it's gone for good. The best way to destroy your character is to practice deceit. God may forgive you, but the scars upon your character, at least in other people's eyes, remain for a long, long, long time. Lying dissolves character. Secondly, relationships are demeaned and destroyed. This really needs no illustration from me today. Some of us have seen what kind of damage and devastation slanderous lies can do to a couple, to a family, to a career. Indeed, to an entire life. And it goes on for generations. Thirdly, the church is disfigured. The church is disfigured by lies. Deception and dishonesty will kill, absolutely kill, a local church. Examples rage all around us, and integrity is at the heart of God for his people. The tragic deaths of Ananias and Sapphira in the first church are classic examples of God's desire for purity and sincerity in his body. It didn't even take, you know, it was right out of the chute Satan started sowing lies in the hearts of the believers in the church. And it disfigures the church. Fourthly, hope is dispelled. Not only does lying reap emotional, relational, and physical damage, but spiritual damage results as well. Those who continually reject truth and persist in lies will be denied entrance into heaven because it proves something. It proves that Jesus Christ does not live in them. How do I know that? Because that's what the scripture says. In Revelation 21 in verse 8, it says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, 
that the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 22, 15 says, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. You see how serious this is? That it's lumped in with all those other categories? When we do not value the truth enough to uphold it, the results are tragic and dramatic. Characters dissolve. Relationships are destroyed and demeaned. Church is disfigured and hope is dispelled. Ultimately, God is displeased because deceit destroys. It's against everything God is. And, his, and as his children, it is against everything that we have been brought into when we've come to Christ. The chilling words of Dostoevsky in the Brothers Karamazov prophetically pinpoint the calamity of our own troubled day. This is what he wrote. Mark these words. I'm going to read them slowly so that you can really comprehend them. A man who lies to himself and believes his own lies becomes unable to recognize the truth either in himself or anyone else. Having no love in him, he yields to his impulses, indulges in the lowest form of pleasure, and behaves in the end like an animal. Unquote. Those are serious, serious words. No wonder God hates it so bad. So if the prohibition is you shall not lie, then guess what the prescription is? You shall speak the truth. Proverbs 10, 11 says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. And so I ask you as we end this, is your mouth a life-giving fountain? Does it speak the truth in love? If the sixth and seventh and eighth commandments teach us to love our neighbor in deed, then the ninth commandment tells us to love him in word by honoring the truth. George Orwell famously said that in times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. We live, my friends, in times of universal deceit. What are we to do as the church? Tell the truth. So start a revolution. Love the truth, live the truth, and tell the truth. That's what Ephesians chapter 3 and 4 tells us in the New Testament. And Zechariah chapter 8 tells us in the Old Testament. But this is what you must do, the prophet says. Tell the truth to each other. Render verdicts in your own courts that are just and lead to peace. Don't scheme against one another. Stop your love of telling lies that you swear are the truth. I hate all these things, says the Lord. Jesus taught us very clearly, and this is what I'll end with, Jesus' own words. 
if you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If therefore the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I, Jesus said, am the truth. And his greatest desire is to see his children walking in the truth. So let each of us pray for his strength to do that, shall we? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for all that you have taught us about Jesus, that he is the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by him. And so let we who name the name of Christ follow hard after him, Lord. Forgive us for the times when we have misrepresented the truth and caused fallout. God, we thank you that because of your blood shed on the cross and the faith that we have in you, that those sins are forgiven. But Lord, you, you want to change us from the inside out and we no longer want to walk in those ways. And so Father, when we're tempted to traffic in lies or even just to tell a little white lie because lies don't come in colors, bring this to our memory that it is not in keeping in step with the Spirit. For I ask it in the precious name of your Son Jesus who is the truth. Amen.